At a time of ordination, it is my duty to call upon the Word of God to be able to show you the doctrine of ordination and to show you the nature of the office and its uses and the qualifications of it. First of all, I would like to explain to you what has been the historic Protestant and Reformed view of what the essence of ordination is. The setting apart of a man by the church for public office in the church. That is the distinctive element. Now there is a sign, there's a sign for it that is given, and it's the laying on of hands. But it is the case that there have been men in the history of the church who have been set apart without the laying on of hands, and it has been viewed by Reformed and Protestant churches that the act of setting the man apart is the essential element. Now, furthermore, we have an order that's given to us, and so our desire is always to obey as much as we know how. Right? The goal is not to just do what the minimum is to make it so a thing is valid, but the goal is to understand what it is that we are commanded to do. And so we look at the details, and so there's an ordination process that is given to us in Scripture, and that includes the laying on of hands to symbolize the transfer of authority and also calling for blessings. So if you look throughout the Scriptures, the laying of hands represents transference. You will find that with the sacrifices, for example. There is this idea of priests laying hands on sacrifices for the transfer of guilt. So the symbol of transfer. Now, when we lay hands upon our ordinand, we will not be seeking to transfer all of our guilt and take him outside the city to stone him. What we will be transferring is authority. And so that transference of authority is what's symbolized. In addition to that, there is a laying of hands that we see for blessing. And the blessing that is done is to bless for the performance of a particular job. And so we call upon God to maintain Mr. Schaefer in his work and in his qualifications. We ask God to bless him to be able to be effective and effectual in the work that the office would be useful. And we ask that God would give him magnificent giftings and that he would, beyond what we have already even seen, manifest fruits and gifts of the Spirit. And so those are the things we call upon in laying hands on the ordinand. Here is the process. If you look at page one, your outline, there are eight steps in an ordinary process of ordination. Nomination is to occur by two or three witnesses. There's a biblical principle that you don't accept testimony in a legal context except by the voice of two or three witnesses. And so in order to nominate a man, you have to have two or three witnesses that are willing to say, I see the qualifications of office in this man. Next. After receiving an ordination is an important thing a nomination is an important thing for the man who has been given a nomination to take time to examine himself to see if he only outwardly appears to have these qualifications or whether he has them. And he might seek counsel privately by others. And in seeking that counsel, consider whether or not in his life he actually has the marks of being a man who is qualified and himself examining to see if there is hypocrisy there that makes him disqualified. The third commandment causes us to be careful to not take the name of the Lord in vain. An ordination is in the name of Christ. It is not simply the act of a congregation or of men who fill offices. It is the act of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when properly and validly done, it is an authority grant by the king of the church. 
So when there is an acceptance of the nomination, that is a sign that the officer is willing. 1 Peter 5.2 teaches us that men who are of office should not do so under compulsion, but rather that they should do so willingly. Furthermore, we are told in 1 Timothy 3.1 that they that desire an office desire a good work. And so it is a good thing to desire office. There is an ultra-pietism in our land that says it is wicked to pursue power. Well, I'll tell you what. It is wicked to not pursue power to do good, and it is a wicked thing to pursue power to do evil. But it is righteous, holy, and just to seek power to do righteousness. And only if men are willing to do it will we ever avoid the rule of the wicked. And so we must give thanks to God that David Schaefer is willing to heed the call of duty, to do what is necessary in the church. And so accepting a nomination shows a willingness to perform office. Four, there is to be a public testing for character, including the condition of the household. Whether the wife meets qualifications and whether the children are in good order. There is to be an examination for competency and ability in the performance of the tasks. And furthermore, there is to be an examination for doctrine to see if he confesses the reformed religion. This has been done over a period of months, both in private meetings and public examination. It is important and serious that a man be tested for office, lest he enter office without knowing whether he will be able to sustain the duties and the burdens of it. Office is a weighty matter. Men already have many duties. Simply being a Christian requires you to keep the whole law of God. Being a head of house requires you to care for the people who are in your house. And beyond having to rule your house, to be in office requires that you give resources, time, and effort, that your energy and strain be given to the public work. If a man cannot bear the burdens of the basic duties of the Christian life in blamelessness and cannot rule his house well, he will destroy the church. He will knock down pillars and he will cause ceilings to fall in. The way a man governs his own house is a prophecy of how he will govern the church. If a man does not lead his wife well, if a man does not lead his children well, why would you ever think he would care for people more distant in a proper way? And if he does care for them more properly and care for them well, but does not care for his children or wife properly, a great wickedness of the theft of time and energy has occurred. He has stolen food from the mouths of his own children and given it to others. That is the wickedness of a man in office who is not governing his own house well. And so, election should be based upon attesting for character, ability, and doctrine. Election by the men of the congregation is necessary because there is a tendency both for officers to abuse power and for congregations to be chaotic and to abuse order. So we have two things, point five and six. There needs to be an election by the men of the congregation, and there needs to be a consent of the officers of the congregation to receive the officer-elect. This is like launching a nuclear weapon. It requires two keys. The reason for the two keys is because there is a great destructive power for a wrongful man to be put into office. At the same time, it is possible by the turning of either key to remove the man. The men of the congregation have the right to remove an officer. And the current officers have a right to remove an officer. And so if either group finds the man to be disqualified, they can be removed. But it requires both groups to see 
that the man is qualified. These things make it so that the office is protected and guarded, that as a man is ordained, he is set apart to a holy work, and being set apart to that holy work, it is necessary that he be holy. Point seven. In order to take this seriously, it is requisite that there be a period of religious fasting with prayer. If you are not willing to go a day without eating food for a man to enter office, he's probably not worth putting into office. That cost of consideration, that idea that it must be taken seriously, that fasting in order to help us to devote our time to prayer is a thing that makes it so that you consider carefully this reality and call upon Lord, the Lord to bless. Furthermore, fasting provides us with ordination, with a regular time to have great power to call down the arsenal of heaven against demonic powers and the world and the flesh. Prayer with fasting is a powerful weapon. It is a thing that is able to cast out the mightiest of demons. And so it is a wonderful thing to see a church engaged in religious fasting with prayer. Eighthly, what happens is an ordination by the imposition of hands by existing officers. This is a summary of what occurs. And this is a serious matter, an excellent matter, an important matter. It is necessary for the well-being of a church. But it is important to realize that officers are not necessary to the essence of a church. A church is formed by a covenanting act where two or three gathered together in the name of Christ commit to perform the duties of a church with each other. And then from that point, they seek more and more to order the doctrine, worship, and government of the church. And so there is a going from an immature state to a more mature state. For the ordinary that we have seen, I want to show you some of the key texts there. And Acts 6 is valuable not only to demonstrate the process for nomination, election, and ordination, but it also helps us to see the origination of the office of deacon. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 reads as follows. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So there were Hebrew-speaking Jews that had become Christians. In other words, they had accepted the Christ as Jesus as the Messiah. So they were continuing in the same Old Testament religion, but seeing now that it was fulfilled. And there were Hellenists. In other words, there were Greek-speaking Jews that had also accepted Christ as the Messiah. But there's a difference in terms of the linguistic group. And the linguistic group resulted in sort of a a chasm because there was difficulty in communicating. And so as a result, there tended to be a way in which the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking members of the church, were not receiving proper care for their widows. It says, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So some of the widows who were needing public help out of the coffers of the church. Now this duty of caring for widows goes back to the Old Testament. There's always been a duty for Christians to care for their brothers who are in need, whether it be by gifts to care for them, for their present support, or whether it be by charity loans without interest for those who are able to work but are temporarily upon hard times. And so the widows would be a category of person that was to receive ongoing gifts, ongoing grants, where they would not be required to make repayment but rather they were simply being supported in their condition of poverty to avoid them going into destitution. Verse 2, uh, and that gets passed along to the Levites and the priests in, in the temple system, the Levites, and we see here the deacons. The deacons take over the role of managing the logistics of the church and caring for the material goods of the church. 
We see in Acts a change from the old ceremonial system to a new ceremonial system. And the authority of what the Levites used to do does not simply disappear. The duty of caring for the widows and the orphans, the duty of caring for officers' maintenance, the duty of caring for the maintenance of the temple, which is no longer in existence, but instead now we have churches meeting in many places, the duties of caring for the incidentals of ministry. Those three things continue on in the office of deacon. They have been transferred from the Levites to the deacon, and this text shows that transference. Verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Just as the priests had the Levites to help them so that the priests could focus upon their worship work, their prayer, their teaching work, here we had the apostles doing the same with deacons. The apostles assumed, they knew, that this work of caring for widows carried over from the Old Testament. It did not go away. What was changed was who would care for it. The duty was on them, but then they gave that duty by delegation to the deacons, and the deacons are established by apostolic appointments. This is an office to be continued to the end of the world. Verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. So what is the saying that pleased the whole multitude? One, it's not desirable that those who are teaching officers should leave the work of teaching the word in order to deal with material goods, serve tables. It is a loss to you if that time is lost. Secondly, a solution is to be sought. So therefore the people, the brethren, were called to look amongst themselves for seven men. Notice it is the people that look and nominate. It is not the officers. Any church that assumes to the officers a sole right of nomination is stealing a right given by the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles, given to the people. The apostolic and biblical example is the right of nomination by the men of the congregation, not just the officers. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. There is a qualification of good repute. The reputation should include being full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means that they exemplify the fruits and gifts of the Spirit. And they are to have wisdom. So there is a power, a competency, and a doctrinal alignment with the truth. Whom we may appoint over this business. The appointing there is an electing, and the appointing here is an ordaining. ordaining. This is by the laying on of hands. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So now, this office allows for a division of labor and a focus on prayer and the word. Does that mean there is never a case where an apostle, an evangelist, a prophet, or those that continue to exist, pastor teachers, should engage in care for the poor? No. But the idea is that the goal is to remove that work as much as is possible with good order and as much as is possible without neglecting that duty by the church. So sometimes there's a need for somebody in a higher office to come down and do the duties of a lower office. Five, 
And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Notice the word faith and Holy Spirit are used interchangeably with Holy Spirit and wisdom. So we see wisdom now is faith, right? What is wisdom? Wisdom is the knowledge of the good and the means to the good. Faith in what God has revealed is the same thing. And Philip, Pacurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So the effect of doing these duties that are appointed by God, doing them well, caring for the poor of the congregation, maintaining the officers of the congregation, and caring for the incidentals that are necessary for ministry, this work makes it so that there is a well-orderedness and effectiveness, and it makes our love more evident for each other. And it causes the witness of the church to be more powerful. And others, seeing the resolution of conflict and problems, are able to look upon the church and say, see how they love one another. See the unity that they maintain. And the result is that they are more likely to hear our witness and to be converted. That is why we are called to do all of these things. All good works are a second witness and testimony to the word of truth. And we are, bo- we are called as individuals to give the witness of our mouths and the witness of our lives. As a church body, we are called to do the same. Even the priests who are knowledgeable, the priests who study the Old Covenant and see how the church is fulfilling the promises of the Old Covenant in the New Covenant, they looked upon this work and they were converted. Now, the idea of laying on hands is here and the prayer is there, but I want to show you Acts 13 and Acts 14. I won't read all the text there, but I want to just show you. Look at the underlying part. Acts 13 is an example of sending men off to represent in terms of going to plant churches. They're given a special commission. A special commission involves fasting and prayer and laying hands on. So this would occur if you're sending people to plant a church. This would also occur if you're sending people off to represent you in terms of going to a court that is more broad uh, beyond the local church. Acts Acts 14 talks about the idea... Furthermore, of appointing elders in every city. And that was done in every church, multiple elders in every church. And that's done with prayer and fasting. You see that in 14.23. So this is the ordinance that God has instituted. So now we consider what kind of a man should have his hands laid on him for the office of deacon. Go to page 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. Likewise, deacons must be reverent. That word could be translated as pious. It's simnas. The idea is he's dutiful and cares about the things of God. He is dignified in his piety. Not double-tongued. He is relied upon to be an honest man. He says the same thing in multiple audiences. He's not given to much wine, so he's not enslaved to pleasure. He's not greedy for money. He's not a slave to money. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So, mystery. Whenever you see the word mystery in the scriptures, it does not mean something that is ununderstandable. It means something that is once hidden and now is revealed. It is thought content from the mind of God that he has given to us in his word. So they must hold to the revealed religion with a pure conscience. One of the differences between an elder and a deacon is that an elder has to be able to teach, to be able to give argument, to be able to prove the doctrine. A deacon is required to hold to that doctrine He must, of course, be able to communicate it in order to be able to show that he holds to it. 
but he is not required to be able to give a defense at the same level as an elder. He's not required to be able to have as extensive of a knowledge, but he must in good conscience hold to the Reformed religion. Verse 10, But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. The testing that's to occur is a public testing. Testing is by the church. And that testing is in order to see what it is that they do, what it is they believe, to see if there are objections. And so you have, of course, the witness of the life in general before a man is nominated. But then there is a testing that occurs after the nomination. And so then there's a basis to vote after that testing. And after they have been tested, let them serve as deacons. That testing includes sort of serving as an assistant. It involves training there. So you see the performance of the duties. Are they reliable? You ask them questions. You look into things. You talk to the wife. You look at the home. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Blamelessness is not sinlessness, or we would have no officers. Blamelessness means that you display the positive qualifications, and you've done so for at least a year, because of the idea of a covenant period of testing that is given. We have the principle that a man who is married for his first year should not be given public business. He should not be put into the office of a soldier, even in time of war. And so think about that. Warfare in defense of your nation is so important, it prevents the destruction of your nation. But a man who is in his first year of marriage is to be spared from that public business in that extremity. Lesser public business that is less urgent is to be carefully kept from those who are in the first year of marriage. And so furthermore, you need this idea of a year of testing as the basis for seeing if a man is fit for a covenantal obligation or to be able to see if his house is in order. And so blamelessness is seeing that a man has displayed the positive qualities for at least a year and that there is no outstanding charge against him which he has not repented of, which he has not resolved or given a defense of. Blamelessness is this man is worked through conflict resolution and is shown qualification. Likewise, their wives must be reverent. Again, that's simnos, this idea of pious, dignified piety. Not malicious slanderers. Not malicious gossips. Temperate. Faithful in all things. And that faithful in all things is better translated as believing all things. It means the same thing as what is said of the deacon. She must believe the Reformed religion. So she is to be somebody who is able to be relied upon to be dutiful, reverent, who is careful with information she receives about others, not a slanderer, and is temperate, is serious-minded. And she has to believe the Reformed faith. It has been a joy to examine the Schaefer house and to see the good order of their home. It has been a joyful thing to see the way that David Schaefer is diligent in work and to see the diligence of his wife and to see the blessing of their early fruits in the raising of their children. 12, verse 12. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife. This is a one-woman man, a faithful man, a man who is not engaged in any external acts that are sexual outside of the marriage bed and to be relied upon, to be faithful to his wife. Ruling their children and their own houses well. So the children, are they being raised in the faith? Are they beginning to show some signs? The older the child, the more it's easy to tell that. But the furthermore, this idea of running the house well involves being careful to deal with the property and the work of the house. Is it well organized? Is it ordered? And the qualifications for elder, there is this idea of being cosmion. 
sort of the same thing. Is this man well-ordered? Is he able to make decisions to lead, to make it so that the house is managed well? Verse 13, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. The office of deacon is a deacon is an office that makes it so that there is an opportunity to serve and gain greater standing, greater honor in the church, which makes it so people are able to look upon you as a potential candidate for greater authority. Furthermore, it obtains boldness as you work, as you have to deal with public office and make decisions, and people are looking to you to see what will be done, as you have to help people and counsel them and deal with their difficulties and their needs to be brought out of positions of destitution and need, as you enter into their lives to give them a sort of discipleship in helping them to pull out of the situation where they are causing problems for themselves, there is a way in which you get pushed to have to be more bold. One of the things that happens when you minister to other people is you find that they love their sin. And in loving their sin, they do not want the solutions that the Word of God has to offer. And so they continue in sin in a way that drags them down to need continual help. But a deacon has to push them and say, you must stop this thing. It is destroying your productivity. It is ruining your home. It is ruining your witness. It is ruining your life. You must repent. And so that call, that work by deacons to call men to repentance as they look into their lives and help them in the cases where they have extremity of need pushes them to have to be more willing to speak the truth, to be bold. And so it gains a boldness. And these things are necessary. They are necessary for the office of elder. If you do not have good reputation, you will not be nominated to elder. If you do not have a boldness to speak the word in season and out of season, to be able to rebuke those who contradict the true faith. If you don't have that boldness, you cannot serve in the office of elder. And so the office of deacon is an excellent office, a high office, a worthy office, and it is an office that helps men to be ready for higher office. There's a blessing that comes from the work of a deacon. Now here's the thing, you might say, why would a man want to take all of that on himself? Because we are told that the Lord has given to us work to be done, to exercise dominion, to disciple the nations. And we are told that the good life is the life of increasing responsibility. If you are given much, you have opportunity to honor the Lord more. You have opportunity to obtain greater rewards in this life and the next. And so, we find that when you do well, the reward that the Lord gives is not a vacation, it is a promotion. And it is worth seeking. If we do well, if we honor the Lord in this life, what will happen? On the day of the resurrection, when he judges the secret acts of all men, for those who have used well the things that the Lord has given, he will say that you have done well, and he will take what you've done and replace it with a greater authority. You have had ten talents, now govern ten cities. The resurrection is not a vacation. It too is a promotion. And so there is a work that we are called to do. And the good life is the life of increasing responsibility. Now, having seen the ordinary way, having seen the qualifications, we here at Puritan Reformed Church are not yet fully matured. We are in the process of further settling, maturing, regularizing, and establishing this church. And so, 
the form of government written by the Westminster Assembly, the Westminster Form of Presbyterial Government, teaches the following. It says, in extraordinary cases, something extraordinary may be done until a settled order may be had, yet keeping as near as possible may be to the rule. You have heard the ordinary rule. The ordinary rule has been laid out. The only difference we need to make from our ordinary rule is normally you would want multiple officers to be involved in the ordination. We only have one officer locally. And so our options are two. One, I could ordain Mr. Schaefer by myself and establish a pattern similar to Episcopalianism seeming to be as a bishop with the sole right of ordination. Or, two, we can see a devolution of authority where the men of the congregation who have voting authority join in the ordination for the symbolism of the passage of authority. And so we look to the scriptures to find what pattern is ordinary there. The scriptures give to us, we'll come back to page 3, but go to page 4 for a second. They give to us 2 Chronicles 29, verses 34 to 36. Here is the example. The example is of devolution when there's a need for additional persons. But the priests were too few. They were trying to engage in the proper sacrifices, but the priests were too few so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brethren, the Levites, the people next down in the authority chain for this work, helped them until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves. For the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Okay, so here we have an example of the devolution of authority in a time of need in order to fulfill the needs that are required for the church. We have another example of this with David eating the showbread. The Lord Jesus Christ takes the idea of things that are holy being able to be given to others when they have prepared themselves if there's a need for the church in order for the good well-being of the church. And so you find that teaching, the Lord Jesus Christ says that the Sabbath is for man and not man for the Sabbath. Ordination is for man and not man for ordination. Sadly, the Cameronians provide for us a very strict form of covenanting Presbyterianism that thought there was no opportunity to ever have the devolution of authority. The Cameronians sought very carefully to maintain the Westminster Standards, and in doing so, they thought that for some reason, even though the Westminster Standards contain an idea of an exception, for extraordinary cases, in other words, unsettled conditions, that they should never have the congregation lay hands on a man to become an officer. As a result, the Cameronians stopped existing. Ordination exists for man. Man does not exist for ordination. There's this clear scripture principle of the devolution of authority, and it is better to see the authority devolved than to see it concentrated into the hands of one man. And so, this is why this action, outside of the ordinary, is taken. We have carefully sought to maintain the ordinary order, and this is the exception for our circumstances. Now, it is desirable that we could involve additional churches, and we have been seeking to associate with other churches of like faith and practice, those who uphold the covenanted uniformity of the Westminster Assembly, and we have been We've invited a pastor of another church that we believe is our closest prospect for association in the formation of a presbytery. And so, with that invitation, we are here without other officers from other churches. And the deviation we had this morning 
is from the ordinary, and it is having the men ordained with an elder. Now, page four. The origins and duties of the office. First of all, the duties of the office and the authority to deal with it come from the communion of the saints. We have a shared goal, a shared salvation. We are to suffer together and to bear with each other and bear each other's burdens. We are to rejoice together and to share in the joys that we have. We are to use our gifts for each other and our offices for each other. Secondly, there are duties of the church towards brothers who are in distress. So the office of deacon is meant to take care of a duty that is given. Three, duties of the church to provide provision for officers and congregants for ministry. That has to be done by the church. Also, the church is required to maintain officers. So the office of deacon deals with those duties. There is to be a stepping in to care for people when they are in trouble. And if there is no officer, individuals are called to stand in the gap, if necessary, to perform the necessary duties of the church. So if you see a brother who is in distress and the church has failed to care, you as an individual must make sure they do not starve, do not die, are not naked in the streets. The diaconate is called to make sure that there is a net. First, the duty is the individual. Second is their household. Third is their extended family. Fourth is the church. And if the church isn't doing it and the family's not doing it, the close household's not doing it, and the individual's not doing what they're trying, and you just happen to see it as a fellow member of the church, you should jump in. The Levites and the priests were given in the old administration for the work of dealing with the functions of priests for prayer and teaching and the public worship. The Levites were given for the material work. We have the idea of the tithe being instituted for this material function. It was given, Abraham gives us an example of the tithe. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, and we have the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that continues. Jacob swore a vow to tithe. Moses gave the commandment of tithing and gave us the three functions of the tithe, which again are caring for the needy, maintaining officers, and paying for the incidentals of ministry. All of these duties, all of these functions are maintained. And in the New Covenant, deacons and elders are given to perform the duties that were previously performed by Levites and priests with a change of outward external order. Now, we will look at the diaconal covenant of this church to see these duties explained more. Look at the bottom of page 4, the oaths of the ordinant. First of all, there's a requirement to believe the scriptures, and secondly, the covenant to uphold the reformed faith as it's expressed in our confessions, catechisms, a directory of worship, and our form of government. This is the man swearing that he upholds the true religion. Thirdly, there's a swearing to pursue the good of the congregation and the glory of God with the office. The office does not exist for the man who's taking it. He is to take it to serve. Four, do you promise to diligent to be diligent in prayer, reading, study, meditation, and all the duties of your office. So there are certain private duties to maintain holiness and diligence. And so prayer, reading, study, and meditation are all things that are necessary for that. But then here are the specific duties of the deacon. And we see this laid out in some of the texts we've already seen. But here we've captured it to try to order it for systematic form. Seek to free the elders to focus on word and prayer. Remember that from Acts 6? Perform the duties of the church toward elders. 
attend to and assist the elders on all lawful occasions and work at their direction and call. So the idea that the deacon comes to seek to help the elders. At the same time, it's important to recognize that the deacon is not merely an extension of the elder. The deacon has an independent authority given by God. The delegation of authority to a deacon is first by Christ. And so deacons are to vote on a council. There are three councils that a local church should have when it is in a good and mature condition. And each of these councils is called to have public meetings that are witnessable by the public, where a record is maintained and their actions are able to be scrutinized and to be seen if they act according to the scriptures. These three councils are, first, the congregation, where the heads of house vote. They can, one, elect officers, two, remove officers, and three, they are the final check on an act of excommunication. So without the vote of the men, there is not to be a removal of a person totally from the church. We see that from 2 Corinthians with the idea of the penalty of the majority. Then there is the diaconal council, which includes the elders and the deacons, where there is a voting on what to do with the property that is maintained in trust in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, there is the court of the elders to deal with matters of government and doctrine. That is the ordinary form. And so the deacons have a vote on that second council, and they also have a vote on the congregational council as heads of their own house. Secondly, they are to have the duty of collecting material, of collecting the tithes and offerings of the people, to account for it, to keep it or guard it, to manage it so that it is kept well and not wasted and just held in a storage place without any use, and to dispose of it in terms of putting it to proper ends. Then there are three historic things, which I have already listed for you multiple times, but it's important Historically, the church is desirous to add on functions that Christ has not given it. The church has been given a limited grant of authority, and we have no right to take the money that is owed to Christ, that is given by the people in trust to be held by the officers of the church, and to put it in disposal in other uses. We may only use the money as Christ has commanded. It is his kingdom, and we may not do anything except what he has commanded. And so... The three uses of the money historically, and you find this even in ancient councils of churches, is to maintain the officers of the church, to discharge expenses for the incidentals of ministry. And these would be things like a place to worship, elements for the sacraments, things that are publications of the doctrine. We're talking a narrow scope of things that are incidental to the ministry. What the ministry is we're called to do, the things that are necessary to perform that. And thirdly, to provide care for the needy by distributing material aid in the name of Christ with discipleship and prayer. All charity, we are commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to give it in the name of Christ. There is a special duty to be very careful with the money that the church has to make sure that we give it in the name of Christ, which means not just a mere throwing bags of money at people while telling them this is in the name of Christ, It is to disciple them and to pray that the giving of these things would be helpful to them in helping them to reform. And we pray that God would bless that 
and we seek to put time into pouring into them to disciple them. And the book of James teaches us that we are not simply to pray that people would be blessed, be warmed and filled, but we are to take action, to seek to actually warm them and fill them. And so the word of God, prayer and action are necessary, and they add power to our testimony. We do it first inside of the covenant community, and then we take to the world resources and the word together. And so these are the things that we are to do with the diaconal ministry. There is a duty of an officer to maintain qualification and blamelessness and to be an example to the flock. There is a duty of the officer to seek the purity, unity, and peace of the church, to help to prevent error and to stop schism, to help others to remember that they have covenanted and to maintain it and to go through proper conflict resolution before separation from a body. There is a duty of an officer to be humble. One of the dangers of authority is arrogance. And so when entering office, there is an oath to be humble in hearing admonitions and rebukes and to be careful to be meek in the exercise of authority. Let me remind you, beloved, meekness is not quietness and weakness. Meekness is a call to control strength, to direct it properly, to be vigorous in opposing what ought to be opposed, and to be careful to not harm that which should be protected. And meekness is a call for controlled strength of a man. Lastly, those who are in office who are hirelings tend to take the rewards and honor when things are easy. And they run away like the cowards they are when trouble or persecution come. We do not want hirelings. And so our last oath is to swear to maintain the service and to do it especially in the face of trouble or persecution. Now, for a man to swear to do so many things, and for those he serves to have no obligation in return, would be a cruel and wicked thing. And so it is necessary that I remind the congregation now that you too are entering into duties. And so what are these duties? First of all, if a man goes through all of this process, this agonizing process of examination to be ordained, and later on somebody calls into question the legitimacy of his office, what a wicked betrayal. And so the first oath is to swear, has he gone through the proper process? And so you acknowledge it. Secondly, to receive him as an officer and acknowledge him as an officer, that his authority is not in himself and not just from you and not from me. It is from the Lord Jesus Christ as a part of his kingdom. And therefore, you have a loyalty that you owe to him. You have a duty to honor him as an officer of the kingdom. You have a duty to obey him in lawful commands, to submit to him in recognition of his station, and to defend his station against those who would slander it or against those that would seek to undermine it and to defend his person against those who would slander him and would undermine his work. And you have a special duty to do this in times of trouble or persecution because do you know who get targeted first in times of trouble and persecution? Officers. Officers have an emblem on them and a target. It is common to strike the shepherd in order to scatter the sheep. And so officers ought to be defended by their people. It is a grievous thing, a wicked thing, 
a betrayal, in times of persecution, to let the officer suffer and to not defend him. Some people would oppose this by saying, well, Peter tried to defend Jesus with the sword. And Jesus told him to stop. That's right. The Lord Jesus Christ came to die. None of us did. None of us have come to pay for the sins of the people of God. We have come to live and to serve the Lord as long as we can. And self-defense is a just right under the Sixth Commandment. And the defense of others who are under attack is a duty and right under the Sixth Commandment. And so it is the duty of everyone in the congregation, if the officers are attacked, if there are hate crime laws that are passed to say you cannot preach the scriptures, those officers need to maintain their ground and say we should obey God rather than men. They should preach boldly. And then if officers come after them, it is everyone's duty here to recognize that those people are seeking to arrest them outside of the law, under the color of law, as tyrants. This and many other things are ways in which persecution could come in our church. In the history of the church, persecution has come often. If this comes, we must be together, we must stand together, and we must be willing to defend one another. The officers are expected to sacrifice for the defense of the congregation, and the congregation is expected to stand behind them. There is nothing so inglorious as to see an officer charge and his men to stay behind. Vow 3. Do you promise to maintain, encourage, and assist him in all the parts of his office, especially in times of trouble and persecution? Or persecution. Maintaining involves giving provision for him and for the incidentals of the ministry. To encourage him, to stand beside him and behind him, to go with him, to assist him, to work with him, to help to accomplish the goals. These are the duties of the congregation toward an officer. Now, Having considered all these things, my request is that you all stand now as we read the word of institution for ordination. I will read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 as a text. This text proves that we are supposed to ordain officers, and it is an approved example text. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You may be seated. Now, the word of God and prayer sanctify the ordinances of God. So let's pray now for this ordination. 
Father, we thank you for the gift of officers and for ordination as an ordinance to help us to recognize them and to, in an orderly and lawful way, in a way that is edifying to the church, to set men apart. We ask for your blessing on this work of ordination. We ask that you would bless the church, that you would bless the ordinance, that you would bless the prayer and fasting that have come before. We ask that you would bless David Schaefer in his work, that you would bless him with gifting and with honor, with boldness. We ask that you would cause him to have more gifts, for those gifts to be effectual. And we ask that you would cause him to be filled with wisdom and with the Holy Spirit to even a greater degree. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, the King of kings and the King of the church. Amen. Amen. Now, Mr. Schaefer, please come forward. Mr. Schaefer, you are about to swear to enter office. Is it true that you desire the office of deacon? I do. And I will give to you now the oaths of office. Please raise your right hand. And as you say, as you respond to these, I will read them. And I will say, do you at the end. And my request is that you say, I do, if you take the oath. I would encourage you to say so loudly. This is a confession of faith, and furthermore, it is a confession of your intention to fulfill this office. David Jarrah Schaefer, do you believe all the statements and necessary inferences of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the rationally coherent and infallible word of God, the very truth itself, and the only rule for faith and life? Do you? I do. Do you believe the covenanted uniformity in the Reformed faith contained in the confession, catechisms, directory of worship, and form of government adopted by Puritan Reformed Church to be true and right according to Scripture alone? I do you? Do you promise, in taking this oath, to seek the good of the congregation and the glory of God? Do you? I do. Do you promise to be diligent in prayer, reading, study, meditation, and all the duties of your office, which are to seek to free the elders to focus on the word and prayer, perform the duties of the church toward them, attend to and assist the elders on all lawful occasions, and work at their direction and call, collect, account for, keep, manage, and dispose of the property of the church, maintain the officers of the church, discharge expenses for incidentals to ministry, Provide for the place of church assemblies. Provide for the elements of the sacraments and assist in their arrangement, distribution, and right use. Provide and care for the needy by distributing material aid in the name of Christ with discipleship and prayer. Do you? I do. Do you promise to seek to keep yourself and your household blameless and exemplary in order to continue in service and encourage the usefulness of your office? Do you? I do. Do you promise to seek to maintain and advance the purity, unity, and peace of the church against all error and schism? Do you? I do. Do you promise to submit to all lawful admonitions and discipline in humility and meekness? Do you? I do. 
Do you promise to continue in service against all trouble and persecution, to lead the people and aid the elders through difficult times? Do you? I do. Now, lower your hand. The congregation, for all of you who are members of the congregation, I ask you now to stand. I need you to understand, that includes men, women, and children. I need you to understand that I will be acting as your representative to sign the covenant. Whether you say I do or not, you will be covenanting by my action because representatives are able to covenant on behalf of their people. But you are making more explicit that covenant. And so it is a good work for you to say I do to this. And so we have all participated in this process and there has been plenty of opportunity to object. And so if you refuse to covenant now, this is not a dissimulation that will be effective in preventing you from its obligations. But it is important that you consider it and that you participate in this covenant. So first, I will ask you the question, I will then say, do you? And I will encourage you to say, I do, and to say it loudly. Do you acknowledge this man to have been nominated, examined, and elected by this congregation to the office of deacon? Do you? Do you receive and acknowledge him as an officer of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ with lawful claims on your loyalty, honor, obedience, submission, and defense of his station in person, especially in times of trouble or persecution? Do you? I do. Do you promise to maintain, encourage, and assist him in all the parts of his office, especially in times of trouble or persecution? Do you? I do. You may be seated. Now you who are of the men who are voting members, please come forward to participate now in the ordination. What we will do is I will stand in the middle. I will place my hands on Mr. Schaefer's head. The rest of you have a request that you either find a place on his head or on his shoulders to lay your hands on him. Then... What we will do is we will pray both for him and for blessing on the ordination and his office and his work. And lastly, at the end of that, I, representing the congregation, will extend and representing the officers, will extend the right hand of fellowship to Mr. Schaefer, then being Deacon Schaefer. Then please lay your hands. David Jarrett Schaefer, we ordain you in the name and by the power of the King of the Church, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the office of deacon. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this man, bless this ordinance, and that you would bless his work. We ask that you would bless the church in his home. You cause this work to be effectual and powerful. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Deacon Schaefer, extend to you the right hand of fellowship. Now, you may return to your seat. 
Everyone, please stand and open your Psalters to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. A Song of a of David. O oh, truly, it is very good and pleasant to behold when the brethren come together and dwell in unity. O oh, it is like the precious oil poured out upon the head, which does run down from Aaron's beard even to his garments. As the dew from Hermon descends upon Zion's mountain, for there the Lord his blessing gave, even eternal life. This text reminds us of the goodness of unity and of the blessing of officers. Now, instead of having oil, which is a symbol for giving strength and anointing in the Old Covenant, we have only ordination. There's a simplification down. But the giving of strength is symbolized in ordination. And so we have this idea of the muchness of the oil, with the pouring down of the beard. We have the Holy Spirit now, given in abundance. And there's a pouring out of the Spirit on those men whom he gives the office to. And so we pray that the Lord would bless him. We have prayed so. Let us sing now, looking to and calling upon the blessing of God here.